0: Hey there, Christy Landhansie. Yeah, because we can't shut the door, so that you hear somebody in the background. That's Anya. I am so excited. We have got a guest that I, I tell you, when you have dreams and your dreams are taken away from you because of this illness, and you have to reinvent those dreams. That is what our next guest has done. She has a laundry list of accomplishments. I was like. Are you sure you wanna talk to me? I was so excited because she's got all these wonderful accomplishments, but they came after she reinvented herself after this illness. Welcome Anya Khan, welcome to AWOL Zebra, how are you? I'm good, how are you today? Excellent, thank you for being here with us. Now, you were diagnosed, uh, first of all, I always talk about like the age. I'm 53 and how old are
1: you? I'm 45. I didn't think about it for a minute. I, <laughs> I know.
0: It's like, okay. Okay. Now, when did you get your diagnosis? Two years ago. Wow. Okay. So this is new to you as well for me. Now, what were you doing prior to the diagnosis? Like, how were you living? Were you gaslit? Did you have an idea of what you had, but you just couldn't get a diagnosis?
1: You know, it's been a, it's been a long journey, I mean, it really started for me from birth having issues. You know, I was allergic to pretty much everything out of the womb and they had to feed me canned meat juice because I couldn't even have breast milk or, or any type of formula is like the only protein I can eat. And then through most of my childhood, I was gangly and, you know, I fell a lot and I had a lot of infections and just a lot of issues And then when I was 14 is when I started noticing, I started, things started to change. Of course, hormonally you start changing. So I started having panic attacks. My throat would close. There was a lot of issues that started. And by the time I was 19, I was just done. Like my life had been completely severed and started changing exponentially. And then it went on from that point on until my 40s of uh, being gaslit and I'm extremely tenacious. So, you know, I pursued numerous doctors, numerous, um, you know, opportunities to figure out what was wrong, passed around and and regularly told that it was a mental health issue. And, and did I have things that were mental health related? Absolutely. And I don't shy away from that. You know, I have um, a little bit of OCD. I'm extremely anxious. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of panic attacks. I'm kind of high strung. Um, you know, who wouldn't be anyway? And I also came from a challenging upbringing. So in, in that being very vulnerable and open about that to every doctor, because I had been in in therapy since I was 14, actually behind my parents back. My parents didn't know I was in high school counseling's, counselors offices all the time and okay. um, seeking, you know, uh, counseling support outside of high school. So I had a pretty good background with getting that kind of support. So when I started seeking help, you know, with doctors for medical stuff, they were like, well, you have a mental health issue. And I'm like, well, I already know that. <laughs> but there's, there's more to the, the story. And I, I do think that when you're vulnerable and open about child abuse or other issues that perhaps have happened in your life it's easy for people to want to lean on that as the possibility of what's wrong with you. And so 90%, I mean, it was up till the day of diagnosis that I was still being told that it was in my head. I mean, I even went into mental health facilities. I, I remember the first moment when somebody said to me, when I went in for an emergency room situation and the first time in my life, a nurse said to me, I'm not gonna give you a psych evaluation because I know it's not psych, and I started crying and I was like, "Thank you." Twenty years later. Oh, now it, it, it's it's not funny,
0: haha, but it's ironic. This is odd. When you were 14, you started therapy behind your family's back. When mm-hmm. and you, it was like kudos to you from the individuals that you sought therapy from. When I was 14, I I walked to the gynecologist office. Because I was thinking that, okay, I might be sexually active. And the doctors were like, we commend you for taking the initiative to come in and be proactive and do that. At 14, that was many, many years ago for both of us. Well, many for you, but many, many for me. And to then to live our lives as we get older, to not be commended for being forthright with seeking a diagnosis. Did you not find that odd?
1: Yeah, especially, you know, when a lot of times I felt like I wanted to be a partner with them. You know, I wasn't coming in blaming. I wasn't coming in expecting everybody to have answers. And I wanted to be a team player in trying to figure out what was wrong and to be quickly brushed under the rug. And I know I'm articulate. You know what I mean? Like I have a background in psychology. You know, I've, I've gone to school for psychology for the fact that I thought I was crazy. That was a whole reason. And so to be articulate, have a background in psychology and still be gaslit that there's something mentally that's the only problem wrong with me, it concerns me for those people who are so sick and maybe can't be articulate, that are just looking for support and are so, you know, not that I didn't get to a point of being completely destabilized, and I'm sure I was not articulate. I mean, I got to really bad spaces, but for numerous years, I was forthright. I was open, I was vulnerable and they it just, you know, not to blame medical professionals cuz I do understand. I'm a I'm a diplomat. Like I get it that there's so much for them to figure out and it's very difficult to understand the difference between perhaps somebody having a mental health crisis or perhaps trauma affecting them even viscerally, physically to not want to lean into that if that's been a part of their life but I also think that there should be more open dialogue especially with women right now you know but all men and both men and women and everybody in between you know it's not gender specific but it is you know commonplace for women throughout history to be brushed off as its hormones its hysteria it's you know it's you're too emotional, all of that kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's pretty upsetting. So yeah, it's, it's not, it's not a good place to be for either party for doctors. I mean, they have so many things that they have to figure out, but there are doctors I've seen hundreds that are neglectful and rude and cruel and overworked. You know what I mean? And, and, and also they've experienced, um, They've experienced, I want to call them customers and clients because I work and that's what I call people, (laughs) patients, you know, patients that are neurotic and do have mental health issues and do cause them great distress. So, you know, but it doesn't mean that there isn't real people out there needing support. And I think the whole system is, is just generally fatigued. We're all tired. Doctors are tired. People are tired. You know, it's, it's tough. It's really tough, but doctors should go through training to be more empathetic, more understanding and more open to ideas that there could be something strangely wrong, especially if people continue to seek without answer.
0: No, exactly. And especially since, you know, you were were working at it since you were 14, you had obviously had problems since birth and then to start just being dismissed has got to be extremely frustrating and it's got to be i mean mentally draining and as you're dealing with that what you're doing in your career i mean you start realizing uh because i mean you're an artist and you brought up being allergic to things you started finding out that what you were doing for a living was affecting you health wise as well correct
1: Well, and the art thing wasn't really doing it for a living. It was, it was really a lean into that fact that I couldn't work. Okay. So, you know, or I, I could work somewhat. So doing, doing the web design, um, graphic design and all of that from the early stages was, okay, so let me take you back. So I wanted to be a therapist. As I said, I went to school for psychology and in that. I ended up losing my ability to go to school and also work. And when that happened, I had to figure out what I could do to make a living. And in that I leaned into graphic design and web design because I'd been doing it for fun. I was a musician. I had been building websites. You know, I ran a small, you know, uh, record label before, you know, iTunes showed up and, and killed a lot of small record labels. And when I was doing that, And then I got sick. Well, I was still sick, but when I got so sick, I couldn't work. Right. I then thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could do this as a skill. Cause it wasn't a skill that I planned to use for a career. I mean, I wanted to be a therapist, you know, like it wasn't like, oh yeah, I want to build websites. Right. But when I started pursuing that and was able to make a little income, you know, that's what I was doing. But then on the side, as an artist, that was also a career. And it is not so much a living, but it was something I was making money at. It was something that I leaned into, but it was never like a career choice, kind of like the web design and what I do now. It was not a career choice. I didn't go like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I started working on art-related things as a therapeutic kind of approach. And I met some wonderful gentlemen by the name of Roger Popwell at a picnic. He was a photographer for a local uh, newspaper and he just wanted to take a picture of my art and what I was doing. It was more like a kid's event. We're all hanging out and we ended up becoming friends. And he ended up seeing... The work I was doing, he encouraged me to submit to galleries. I'd never even thought of that. And I'd been an artist since I was a kid. You know, I had always done art. I had always been a creative person. I'd been writing songs and singing in my bedroom, you know, right. annoying my parents. i like, shut up, go to bed. <laughs> um, stop singing shit in the bed. And, you know, in that, then it became a career. But the problem for me is kind of like you, what you were just saying is I couldn't use traditional media. You know, I used to very, you know, in, in some aspects touch things, but then I became so allergic to them that my career was really based on digital art. Now, understand we sit in a time now where digital art, AI, all that stuff is uh, communication. Everybody knows what that is. Oh, five. No one knew what digital art was. Right. And so when I was submitting to galleries or, or shows or, or for press or whatever, I was often rejected because it was like, well, this isn't real art. And in digital art now versus AI is a whole other story. Digital artists of the age that have been here from the beginning have been hand painting, doing photo montage, you know, doing that rather than pushing a button with AI, which is a whole other circumstance. But they are artists and there's museums dedicated to digital artists. And it's just like photography. When photography came out, The master painters of the world were like, this is baloney. This isn't art. And now we have museums dedicated to it. And it's the same with digital art. Again, AI, not going to get into that. But prior to AI, there's definitely a group of people. And then in the last two years, that's changed for me. Once I got my diagnosis with MCAS, got on right medication, so I wasn't having two to five allergic reactions a day it changed everything. And I've been able to move into traditional, more traditional media, like watercolor, color pencils, things that are not as offensive, like oil right. paint, for example. And it's funny because everybody's moving to digital. So I'm kind of starting over and I've built a career. I've been very lucky to build a career in the arts. You know, it was, I had my dreams taken away, kind of like you've talked about for yourself. I had a lot of my dreams just ripped out from under me. And when I realized I could be a successful artist, when I started winning awards and getting into shows, I went balls to the wall with it. I was like, "All right, well, I'm going to dominate this." You know, like I'm going to do the thing. Love it. And I've always been a person that likes to check off boxes and accomplishments. I'm very um, competitive, mostly with myself, but very competitive nature. You know, yeah. I used to be an athlete. <laughs> you know, I like I like competing. And then when I changed and moved into this traditional medium, you can't transfer digital to traditional or traditional, to digital, they're very different. I mean, can you change, use skills from both? Yes. And you can do both. But once I moved into doing traditional, it was very humbling because I sucked really badly. Right. And I have a Facebook page that has like a half a million people that follow me. And I decided to be vulnerable about vulnerable about my suck. I was like, and here we are, and I'm sucking, and I want to share with you that I suck. <laughs> so
0: I love, no, but that's, we okay, first of all, we are our own worst enemies by far. We, when we compete with ourselves, especially with this illness, you know, you brought up the OCD and, uh, you know, we've spoken before about, you know, you don't just do something half ass. You go to it, balls to the walls. It's 150%. If somebody asks you to do it, you'll do that and then some, but to the detriment of your body.
1: That's right.
0: And you end up, you know, paying for it. And the fact that you have been dealing with this your entire life, not having a diagnosis, but still trying to turn every negative into a positive and then being successful it it has to be extremely satisfying to know that you can now make a living doing something that was just a hobby but for individuals out there that don't know take us to I mean let's I mean your lowest of lows, at what point? Because people are probably going to be, oh, well, she wasn't this, she wasn't that. I mean, people know that, you know, I was being measured for a wheelchair and they were discussing a feeding tube. Where was your lowest? Like, at what point did you not see you were going to get back up?
1: So it continually progressed. And when my brother committed suicide, it was such an emotional, uh, disruption in my already disrupted health (laughs) like on a good day my life sucked um but when that happened it was so destabilizing and so shocking and it just so much stuff went along with it if people have dealt you know obviously this is a touchy subject um you know um people people losing their lives But in, in that it, it was very challenging. And if anybody's gone through this, it's challenging for different reasons. You know, you have your own personal reasons why, you know, maybe you could have helped the person or, you know, how your other family is coping with it. And things got so crazy that I was already just like going downhill that after, after that, I ended up being in and out of the hospital. I... I basically, and I'd always been in and out of the hospital, but then I actually signed myself into a psychiatric ward at the hospital. Like you have to sign yourself away. Cause I was like, I can't, I was shaking. Um, I couldn't eat anything. I had dropped, I'd already been dropping weight. I'd always been perpetually like extremely underweight. I'm five, nine, I was down to 109. Gotcha. And Wow. So I signed myself into there thinking, you know, again, it's obviously mental health. My brother, you know, lost his life. It's very intense. I'm I'm assuming this is why I'm having panic attacks and why I can't eat. You know, like these are all things that made sense to me. So I was willing to just accept that maybe I was crazy. Like I, I was willing to go there. Like I'm self-aware enough to go like, you know, like maybe everybody, what everybody is saying is true. I was in there for about a week they put me on advanta and i was very anti any medication cuz with eds and i didn't know i had eds at the time but i have had extreme volatile reactions to medications things yes. that help do the exact opposite for me but they did the one medication which they gave me a low dose of a benzo which i would never encourage anybody to do unless you know it's an emergency it is a mast cell stabilizer and it did help things, not a ton, but it did take a bit of an edge off for me. So I could get a little bit of sleep and I wasn't, you know, cause I was not sleeping. I wasn't eating. And if you're malnutritioned and you can't sleep, you start having delirious moments. You start to, you know, it's not good. And so then I put myself into another facility that was focused directly on PTSD So he drove me an hour away to Kansas city and I went there and that didn't work out. You know, I was uh, having reactions because they were spraying cleaner everywhere. And I remember the biggest reaction I had was being on the phone with somebody at the time doing a check-in and they had just, they cleaned the phone after every person's on the phone. This is before COVID, but I had a huge reaction on while I was at the phone, obviously now, you know, nowadays that I know what I have, I can, I can take those pieces and go like, that's what happened. But at the time I didn't know. And so I stayed in there, excuse me. I stayed in there for about a week and that didn't go well either. I just didn't get anywhere. Like everybody was like, you don't have mental health problems. You know, they were trying to get, get me to eat food And I really wouldn't eat anything because everybody thought I was anorexic. And I'm like, no, I just have reactions. And then I signed myself into a third place. We went to Chicago. And that place didn't help me. And by the time I went home, things just didn't move in a good direction. I ended up deciding that I needed to get into having some type of feeding tube. So I ended up talking to my, my, um, gastroenterologist. And, you know, they were very mean to me. They kept saying like you, they were the people that basically told me I need to get into an eating disorder facility and kind of pushed me into those other places. They were very, very rude to me and going into the hospital to get the feeding tube. Now, the thing is people think I had a feeding tube. I had the feeding tube formula and I'll explain why. Okay. So I went in to the hospital to get that Feeding tube. And while they were coaching me, the doctor at the end was like, You need to get back into some facility. <laughs> like, you need to go and get into an eating disorder facility. This is not PTSD, this is not anxiety. And he was yelling at me. And I was like, No, that's not actually accurate. I like food. I've always been thin. Why would I be starving myself? This is ridiculous. So when he left, the nurse and the dietitian were there and I looked at them both and I said, Hey, the formula that you're going to give me, can I drink it? And they were like, yeah, but he said, you won't. So we have to force feed you with it. And I'm like, I'm not having the surgery. Uh-uh. I'm not having the surgery. I said, write me a prescription for the formula and I will go to the medical supply store and get it. And the good thing is, and those with EDS would know this, any surgery you have is extremely dangerous. So if I would have had that surgery, I could be having complications to this day for it. So when I went out and got that got that feeding tube formula, which was Peptamen 1.5 unflavored, I sat in the parking lot and I didn't have an extreme adverse reaction. And then once I ended up being on that formula within, I think like, Two months I gained 10 pounds. Wow. And it was life changing. And it's like, well, why wouldn't anybody just offer that to you? You know, why wouldn't anybody? But I have heard this from other people where doctors won't supplement or they'll basically go like, go get insure. And if you have mast cell issues, insure is full of crap. Yes. Full of so much stuff. And a lot of the feeding tube formula is very clean, right? It's it's clean you know, it's, it's got not a lot of additives in it. It's just, it's a feeding tube formula. It's not insure. So it was that bad. I was going minute to minute in my life thinking I was going to die. I would look at my watch or my clock on my phone and I would look at it and I would then look back down. It'd be two minutes. And I'd be like, how much longer do I have to wait till my person gets home? You know, at the time I was, in a relationship. And I felt safer when people were with me um, for obvious reasons. Right. And so I would spend time and could you imagine just watching minutes go by and I would watch minutes go by. And I was in, I was in a constant state of fight and flight, having breathing issues, feeling dizzy. I couldn't walk sometimes. I mean, it was, I would never want to go back there again, ever. Like no one could just never, it it was, the scariest moments of my life thinking that I'm going to die. And I still, to this day, live in that moment of I may die tomorrow. Like every opportunity, everything that comes up. I mean, even my partner and I had a conversation the other day and I looked at, he goes, you always look at life like you're not going to be here tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, that's just kind of what I don't know how not to think that I'm going to die because I was on the edge constantly. And my family didn't believe me. My doctors didn't believe me. I mean, everybody just didn't believe me. And I, and I feel for them because of course, in all of this, I'm coming up going like, I think I found the food I'm allergic to, or I think I found, I might have this disease or that disease. I mean, there was a lot of crying wolf that wasn't intentional, but looking for answers. And then you have a minute of reprieve and you're like, this is it. It's, and then everything comes back and they're like, it's not it. And then people get sick of hearing it.
0: Right. right. Because it, and when you, when you brought up the clock, it, it, it triggered something in me because it was August 29th of last year. When I put a watch on my arm that only comes off when I get out, when I get into the shower, because I could only look at a clock to get re to to reaffirm where I was or to keep track of when I was losing time because I started feeling lost and it was like you were saying mm-hmm. am I going to make it to the next day and nobody was believing me and so now mm-hmm. I have a clock in my bedroom that cannot be moved and I have this watch on my arm and I forever habitually will look at it and then go on about my day and then go back again because I have to see how much time did I get or have I lost time? Because once something like that happens to you, mm-hmm. it affects you for the rest of your life. Yes, it does. And I, I just it just what you said just hit me so close to home because that was like I remember the day I remember I couldn't breathe. I couldn't stand up right and I was diagnosed with celiacs, and then I went on that diet, and everything got better, and everybody's like, okay, everything's good, and then it wasn't celiacs, it was something else, and yeah, one thing after another, and like you said, the whole crying wolf thing, and then it's to the point, well, okay, now it's H-E-D-S, we'll go with you this time, Christy, but it's, we are forever, and correct me, I don't mean to to put it lump us together. But I feel like we're on the same page where we've been given a diagnosis, but it's still forever changing. It's forever evolving because mm-hmm. it's, it's like I, I was allergic to certain foods for so long and then I could go back and eat mm-hmm. some foods. And now I'm back to being allergic to some foods. It's like, mm-hmm. it's ever changing. Do you, Even though now you have your diagnosis, do you feel, I I don't feel like I'm done. I feel like there's more out there. I feel like there's other things that maybe I can check off or there's something else. I I just, I don't feel like getting a diagnosis means that we should be done searching for ways to get better.
1: Absolutely not. I mean, I think. I mean, I think when you go through something that extreme, that it's hard not to have an impression and that there's there's going to be so much to work through and so many new things to think about. You know, every year of your life, every decade, every piece, even every day, there's there's these moments that, you know, that you have to kind of reevaluate. You never get to be done. And that's I think once I got my diagnosis is when I realized that because I think when I didn't have a diagnosis, I felt like there was an end. I felt like, oh, I'd get better. I'll get better. There'll be an answer and I'll be fine. And then when I got the diagnosis, it was like, I'm not going to get better. And can I still get better in, in ways where I can control it, right? Like, can I make sure I'm getting good sleep and you know, eating the 10 foods that I eat and maybe not you know pushing myself to maybe try something if I'm in a weak space, or if I'm stressed out, you know, knowing my limits and not pushing myself, which is not really something I'm good at. <laughs> yeah. um, but even going, like for an example, even going out yesterday or the day before, I was driving in the car and I was going somewhere different. I just moved to a different state. So I've been here only two months. I'm still learning the lay of the land. And I remember we're going in a different direction and I looked at my partner and I said, can you look up where the urgent care is in this direction? And he did, cause he's used to me needing that information. And I said, you know, I think to make me feel better, we need to have a map of all the urgent cares so that I know, cause before where I lived, I knew where everything was right. Like I lived there long enough that I didn't have to think about it, but now I'm hyper-focused on. Like, I'm not feeling great today because my mast cell stuff can go right down the drain really quick and I can end up in the emergency room in 10 minutes, you know, like it can just like, it's a ticking time bomb. And he looked it up and he's like, and we were driving. And then all of a sudden it's like, we drove right past it. I was like, oh, it's right there. That's a very close. Good to know where that is. Told him we should make a map of urgent cares So I would know where I needed to go. And it's funny because I looked, I looked at him once we stopped the car and he said, I got really teary-eyed and I said, you know, I really wish I could live a life where I didn't have to think about that. You know how many people drive around on the roads and never have to think about where the urgent care is or if people are around. Yeah. You know, if something happens. And I said, this is exhausting to have to have that in your mind all the time. And that's one of a hundred things that I have to do on a daily basis. And it's always, it's always also very interesting how sometimes I don't even recognize that it's abnormal or it's not nor not necessarily normal because I don't like to use the term normal but it's my life is so extremely different from how I have to do everything in my life that every once in a while I'll see some really like things that look normal to me like really normal behaviors and I get like oh my gosh like I will never have that. You know, I will never, I don't even know what that looks like. What is that like to go to a restaurant or what is that like to have a child or what is that like to, to do things? And I understand in life we make choices and a lot of us are already going to think that without health issues, right? Cause you experience things like, Oh, I wonder what it'd be like to have that job. Or, you know, we just, we chose not to have kids. So what's it like to have kids? But I think when you're, you're ill And a lot of things have been made choices for you without you actually actively making those choices. Even now, like for myself, not having kids, I really didn't want kids anyway, based on my childhood experiences. But as I get older into my forties, there is a loss that I'm going through. Both my partner and myself are going through a heavy kind of like, even if we wanted to, and if we chose to do so, we could not do that. Right? right. And that sucks. Or if we want to go do certain things, you know, now that I'm in a new city, I have a lot of new opportunities that I've, I've sought out and they're coming up. And I'm like, how do I navigate that? I don't drive by myself very often. Can I get myself downtown? Vibrations and cars can make me sick. How can I time that not around food? Because when I eat food, my mast cells go crazy. So I try to drive not around those times. Every day is is just trying to get through and, and manage. And that's exhausting. It's tiring. Like I, f- I feel for people like it's fatiguing. It's a full-time, it's a full-time job. And it doesn't, I don't want to tell anybody it gets better because it doesn't, it doesn't get any better. No, and I had great improvement. Like I'm not on a feeding tube formula anymore. I was able to graduate into a small group of ten foods. It was a very slow process of adding one food at a time and putting it into a blender and eating blended wet broccoli, soupy broccoli, like baby food. You know, it was. I'm lucky because not a lot of people can say that they've moved from feeding tube formula because obviously with mass cell and EDS, once you stop eating real solid food, because your body already has issues with connective tissues and digestion, you can atrophy really quickly. And then your digestion doesn't work at all. So I've had progression moving forward. I've been very lucky in that. But there's a lot of things that aren't any better and that are getting worse. And there are things that we have to deal with on a daily basis that is upsetting. And I think the best thing for me has been allowing myself to get mad and angry and then allowing myself also to be a badass and go screw this and I'm not I'm not this and I'm gonna defy what I need to defy by pushing my limits in a healthy way most of the time
0: (laughs) oh you're exactly right because my husband will be like you know, you're not supposed to be vacuuming. You're not supposed to be cleaning the toilets. And I'm like, but you don't understand how satisfying that is. Something that's so simple that you wouldn't think somebody would be requesting to do, you can't do. And it's defeating sometimes. And it makes you think, you know, am I less than? And then you've got this illness. Like, rather than, you know, do a podcast episode, I shouldn't have been working on breathing Breathing in through my nose and breathing out through my mouth. The problem is I haven't been able to find the balance on how, I mean, something simple as breathing that people don't think about. Like right now I'm sitting there going, Oh yeah, I forgot. I need to be breathing through my nose and exhaling through my mouth. I need to practice that. Well, let me pencil that in, but I need to pencil that in, in between working in a shower trying to fix the mm-hmm. meal for my son, trying to fulfill something that was taken away from me, like my job because of this illness, by doing the podcast and by sharing with others, there's not enough time and the day. And I mm-hmm. don't think it, a lot of people realize that unless you have this illness. And I think that's where you can get overwhelmed and defeated. And that was one of my reasons for wanting to share the podcast and have individuals share their stories so that others could know that you know what it, it is difficult to there's just there's only 24 hours in a day and how do you work in normal activities that people that you're supposed to be able to do effortlessly every day brush your Mm teeth, take a shower, feed yourself. I mean, by the time I fix a meal for my son, fixing that meal for me gets pushed Mm -hmm. aside. Yeah. So I can only imagine what you are, because you've got like so many, you know, irons in the fire kind of thing, and you're trying to do this. And it seems like you have the same uh, passion for, wanting to do that and more that (laughs) it's hard to decide what not to do. But then it's also hard to remember that something as simple as relaxing, sitting down and doing nothing, sitting down and watching a television show. What's that? (laughs) Exactly. But that is productive for us because Mm -hmm. we need to, we just need to stop at times that's and, right and that's hard for people like us to do and i i don't mean to like lump us into a category but, but i feel like we're very similar as opposed to it, it's got to be done it's got to be done yesterday and it's got to be done better than anybody else could have done it i don't think we're kind to ourselves and no. you know how do you work all of that in and then not just get so fed up that you just give up on that project that you were working on because for one, you were doing it for free and you were trying to help others and you're just trying to be able to get up and be able to do your regular job and earn money. At what point do you not just go screw it? I'm throwing screw it. There goes my Facebook page. There goes my thing screw it. There's my fault. I'll put something in the gallery on a later day. I I mean, how do you
1: mentally get
0: yourself through it?
1: Yeah, I think, I think I'm different than a lot of people. And I do think it's a neurodivergency for me. I, I often say that, I mean, I've just learned this in, in the very recent, like I just got diagnosed with ADHD And, you know, I know that everybody's like out there going like that's, you know, everybody has ADHD. Like, I do think there's a lot of people that do and I do think a lot of people have gone undiagnosed and I think a lot of people in the 80s who 80s and even 70s, mostly 80s, though, who were eating just like these terrible things, I think has caused a lot of you know, health issues. I think ADHD comes from a lot of chemicals and things that have been put into foods and, and just nasty stuff that was put into foods in the 80s, like (laughs) things that we should have never eaten. Um, No bites. (laughs) Right, exactly. But for me though, being diagnosed with ADHD, um, they have a, a a test and it's anywhere from one to a hundred and I'm at 99. Like, that's the level of ADHD. They actually thought it was a false positive and tested me again because they were like, this is nuts. And I'm like, no, I live like that. But the interesting thing is, is they they're also per- pursuing a diagnosis of autism. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he's definitely sure. He's like, you definitely do. We just need to know the level of where you're at really? on that spectrum. But it seems for me that I'm very lucky because often with ADHD, you're very hyper, you're very scattered, you don't finish things, you know, it's, it's just a very intense, you're very busy, right? Like I talk fast, it's obvious. But it seems like I've been very lucky to be coupled with autism because I feel like that regulates me. It actually makes me finish things. It makes me methodical. It it may, it actually has created more order in my life. And I feel like they work well in tandem. And it's common with people with EDS to have autism and ADHD together. They call it odd, I don't know what it is. There's some acronym for it, right. but it's super common. And for me, I think that I go through burnout often because I don't know how to turn it off. And I've missed so much of my life that I run at high speeds and burn myself out. And then I do that. I'm forced to rest. And then I get back up and do the same thing because it's become a habit for me. And I don't know how not to do that. And I really don't have to do that now because if I was to maintain a more balanced, non-driven intensity I would probably not burn out and be able to have a longer a longer oh I don't know I can't think of the word you know just be able to do things longer be able to have longevity not have to go through those ups and downs but I don't I have I've learned to just kind of go with them because they're hormonal for me also like when I I, there's hormone changes in my body And had been that way for years and, you know, not to get too personal, but right before my cycle, I get very manic. I'll start projects. I'll build brand new websites, like whole entire projects, brand a whole project, start a whole new thing. (laughs) Like, so, and then it'll slow down and then things chill, but also the other part of it too, and, and this might be for you too, and also for other people who are, who are ill is there is this, this compression and expansion. So when we're not well or we're struggling, we compress. We, we decide what we don't want. Like maybe that project we started isn't worth our time. And maybe we put too much energy into this. And maybe we're giving too much to other people here. But then when we're in a good state, or a decent state or a stable state, however we want to call it, because it's going to be dependent on the person, right? Like maybe they never feel good. I've been there, you know, I'm not even stable. I'm just like better than I was yesterday. So that works for me. And then there's a expansion, right? You expand, you, you have ideas, maybe you're reaching out and spending time with friends more, you know, and I think that that's the, the ebb and flow of things. And I just don't, and I think nor- people that are that are that don't have health issues experience that as too. I think it's a healthy, normal behavior to want to expand at times and maybe retract at others. But I think it's more extreme when you have an illness on how you're going to present to the world and what you can and cannot do. Kind of like how you and I talked about in our pre-conversation where I said, I'm out advocating right now. I'm out saying I have EDS, I have a large following. I'm, I'm just speaking my mind because over the last 20 years, I couldn't. I wasn't okay enough to do that. And maybe two years from now, I won't be okay enough to do that either. So in this moment, all these experiences, being on your podcast or, or doing the prevention article or doing other things like that are good for me. Like they, they're healthy for me. But in in a two years or a year, maybe even tomorrow, <laughs> I might be like not really going to do this right now. And I think when we have illness, we just have to learn to ebb and flow, and and know that there's never going to be a consistent. You're never going to get better. You know, you're ne- There's no end game here. There's no. There's no final destination. There's no one thing that's going to just. Make you better. And I think a lot of people with health issues are looking for that book or that alternative treatment or that supplement or whatever that's going to make them better. And it's really a collection of things that make your life improved and that always is going to ebb and change with EDS and MCAS because it's not like this formula works for me today may not work for you tomorrow. And Inconsistency is extremely distressing. I mean, don't we love familiar things? This is why people gravitate to work, go to work rather than being an entrepreneur, because you know what to expect, right? You know what, you, you know, I mean, with everything in life, they say you throw all your problems into a bowl and will you choose yours? Yeah, because of the familiarity of it and EDS and MCAS and POTS and the trifecta of nonsense, you know, with dysononomia and all of that is so unstable. And just never, there's never a rhyme or reason or there's never, you know, like if you have, for instance, you know, high blood pressure, you have high blood pressure, you take a a beta blocker, you know, like, and that's the typical treatment and most people can manage their symptoms of a high blood pressure. Or if you have diabetes, there's certain types of insulin, there's these things, but these disorders don't have, don't have a common Do they have things you can do? And are there things known in the community that do help? Yes. But they're so dependent on the person and the body structure and how much they have one or the other. I mean, it's, you know, you can go all day long talking about this. It's tiring and it's exhausting and it's being able to be with yourself and also surround yourself with other people who can go with you with this, because if people aren't going to support you, screw them for real. Like it's not worth your time to try to convince anybody that there's something wrong with you, even if you're in early stages and don't have a diagnosis and perhaps you're listening to this and maybe you don't even have EDS or you think maybe you do, or you're not sure. It doesn't matter if you have EDS or anything. If you do not feel good and things are challenging for you, you need a team of people, even if it's just yourself that believes you hundred percent and never let anybody change that for you. Continue to believe in yourself and find people who will be there with you.
0: No, you're exact. I always say water seeks its own level and you have to, you know, build the community around you that works. And it's taken me a long time to, first of all, accept that I had this invisible illness because I'm kind of like, if it's not broken, if it's not bleeding, there's nothing wrong, push through. That's just always been the way it's it's been for me. But to now accept that, hey, I do have this invisible illness. I do have something wrong. And then to be able to sit back and realize that when something happens in my life that I used to could just have it like roll off my back for me to now be able to say that negative energy from that person Something that I could have walked away from years ago or just left off now affects me in such a way that it wears me down. Like if I disappoint someone or if someone like critiques a video, I do something that I was just doing for free to share with someone. But then someone comes back and and gives me this negative thing or or somebody, you know boosts my spirits and says oh what an incredible job you did it's like you have to find a balance of realizing what's always so good you know around the corner there's going to be that negative nelly or something like that you have to find a balance but I had it took me a while and I'm still dealing with that to realize that someone that is upset with me because they didn't agree that like, like a tool, like was I work on my fascia and mm-hmm. they bought a tool through my link or something, or they tried doing the thing that I do with my fascia. And then I get an email because it didn't work for them like that. That actually affects my spirits. Mm-hmm. Of course it does. It- do, do you find that things affect you to the point that it's just, it's harder to bounce back from when there's someone that's not in your circle that brings in something that just, it's it's like they're upset because
1: they didn't get something or you, 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 you follow me on that? <laughs> no, I think I do. I think what I'm hearing you say is that you know, when, when certain types of stressors come in and, you know, it's, it's harder often on people with illness because stress, we live in stress in general every day, right? right. Like stress every, It's just like constant stress all the time. And then when something else comes in, especially if you're trying to help people or you're trying to do a good job, you know, it's one of the few ways I think people with illness get some type of joy right? Like, I'm, I'm looking to help a community or I'm offering to do this or whatever the case may be. I mean, if you get negative feedback from things, it can be very hurtful. And I also, you know, the other thing too, is people with EDS and, you know, those other issues often have rejection-sensitive dysphoria. And it's a it's a real thing. Yeah. And it means like you you take rejection or negative feedback, very extreme. It's often common with people with, you know, autism because of the inability to it's like taking everything so literal, right? Like it's hard. Like, this is a joke in my family. Only recently in the last year we figured out like why we get into arguments, me and my partner is because I take everything so literal. I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, it's not like that. I'm like, but what do you mean? Um, But rejection is really hard and you're being rejected all the time. Anyway, your body's rejecting you on a regular basis, right? Like you're in a fight with your own body you're in a fight with, you know, medical people and also like, you know, trying to explain things even my partner and I last night have a conversation about, you know, a miss a a miscommunication, not necessarily between him and I, but in general. And he just looked at me and he goes, it's got to be hard to be misunderstood all the time. And I was like, it really is. It's really hard to have to advocate for yourself to have to be at war with your own body to, you know, I had to establish doctors here when I moved here and I'm not completely established because I haven't liked everybody that I've met and just going in and having to like explain yourself and even still explain myself to friends, you know, like still having to, there's very few people who can comprehend exactly what's going on. I don't expect everybody to understand because, you know, I I don't live in a world where I expect the world to adapt to me. Right. But I also expect that when I do explain things or try to work within the system that people will be open and understand. And so when you're asking about rejection I take rejection pretty hard. I mean, there's certain things I don't like in arts. I've, you know, I've done juried shows and submitted hundreds of things and I get rejection. I've gotten so many rejection letters in my life that it's, I'm over that. But when it comes to certain types of ways of helping people or, you know, a good example is on my website, create for healing it's a website that I do. It's mostly free. There are some paid courses, but I don't, you know, I don't make any money from it. It's really just a website with art and writing that helps people through anxiety, identity issues, narcissistic abuse, mother issues, you know, (laughs) physical health, all the the things. And I had somebody write me telling me they were extremely disappointed with me that a, a file they wanted to download didn't work. And it hurt. And I was like, you're disappointed with, you're disappointed with me. Like, I mean, is there no room for error here? And it, it, it took me, it took me down a little bit and it shouldn't, you know, you should be more resilient. I hear my partner often, you know, talking to me like, you know, you need to, you need to be more resilient. And there are things that I'm very resilient in just living is resiliency. Like, you know, like that's a resiliency. But it does hurt. And I think that people should be more kind to each other. But we we are in a space today where the world is is very volatile. And a lot of people expect things to just be. Like everything should just be perfect and it should just work and everything should just, you know, like there's no grace. So it's hard to give grace for each, for for yourself. But if you are somebody out there who deals with rejection and you deal with it hard and it makes you like really bothered in in other parts of life maybe don't and this is just a real hard place for you i mean it's vulnerable for me to say this on a podcast right like i have this issue <laughs> like i'm i'm sensitive to rejection it sucks and it can it can take me down pretty hard i mean i can bounce back cuz i live by the quote fall down 7 times get up 8 i'm very resilient And I do think that comes from the challenging childhood I had. I had to be that. I was the eldest. So there was a lot of need to be resilient. So I think that's actually helped me in my illness. Although I do think my childhood did make my illness worse. Um, If not, didn't, you know, make it go way off the realm, way off the rails. But rejection is a problem for people that are ill and we're very sensitive and we can be very angry and we have so much going on that there's, you know, we can, we can, It's just tough. You know, there's no real good answer. Just understand if you are dealing with rejection sensitivity, that it's normal. And there's a lot to read about it. There's a lot of ways to stop taking things personally. I mean, you think about the four agreements. You know, there's ways to think like, is this, you know, when you speak to somebody, is it kind? Is it necessary? Well, think about it the other way. When people are saying things to you, it's best to not take it that it's about you. You know, when somebody's rude to you at a store, it's not about you. When somebody gives you negative feedback and not in a constructive way, then it's really not about you. Most of the time when people are rude or just mean – it's not about you. And us as individuals that are sick, we spend a lot of time introspection and in introspection. Like what, what have I done? What can I do? How can I fix my body? What, what's wrong with me? That I think we do a lot of that in just general conversation, the way we live, like what I do, what's wrong with me, what did I do something wrong? Like, and we're, we're always so overthinking, not sometimes we have to kind of let that go and go like, you know, somebody's having a bad day. It's not always about me. It really isn't. Like, That's- It's not always about me
0: and that's what i tell people and and when i do when i see people and they complain about a post i i tell everybody i said treat it like you would your radio station if it's something you wouldn't listen to change the dial so go to the next post don't sit there and make a comment and 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 make somebody become on the defensive when they just are asking a question but it's a trigger And it's just a shame that it's mm-hmm. the way it's like we've come into this, into this society, but with having this illness, you already, like I said earlier, we are our own worst enemy, and then we're striving to do more, and you know, you you take on these extra stressors, and it's like, oh my goodness. So I, I tell you what, I I I think we got a lot accomplished today i i have been waiting for this interview because i find you fascinating Aww, i thank that, you i mean i do i i love the things you did but we're running close out of time what i'd like to do if, if you think um you, i i wanted to get the message out and you did about how you really came from your lowest point and and turned this into success and that you're still dealing with it you're still thriving and and you're just even getting more successful I'd, I'd like to bring you back for another episode on another day, but would you? That'd
1: be great. Before, I love it.
0: Would you please? And I'm so glad because you're just great. Would you be willing just tell everybody about your Crate for Healing, like where they can go? But I'm sure there's a lot of artists and somebody
1: that would like to have
0: time, you know?
1: Sure. Yeah. You can find Crate for Healing at CrateforHealing.com. Like I mentioned earlier, it's a lot of just like art and writing classes focused on challenging topics. At least 50% of the classes are completely free. Uh, a lot of classes around trauma and in challenging issues, some things about medical coming up, medical trauma, and that's crateforhealing.com. We do have a Facebook group and um, we do, we're on social media. We're not completely active on there, but there's a good amount of courses. We're always looking for other people who might want to contribute to, you know, offering courses or helping other people. And uh, yeah, we don't, we do not make money from it you know, like 99% of things just kind of come in and, and we just do it for the community. It's it's an important, for me, art saved my life. Like it really was that thing that kept me going to express myself and, and just be, kind of take myself away from what I'm doing. You don't have to be a good artist too. I do want to say that, you know, a lot of people will say like, well, I'm not a good artist. It's not about that. Gotcha. It's not about that. It's all about doing art making a mess, being real with yourself, being willing to screw up, being willing to just be in the process. You don't have to, there's no good art. Is there people that are accomplished? Sure. But art is art. And I've always lived from that space. Art is art. Writing is writing. Just do. And the more people that can just relax and release and just not have expectations of the creative process... Is is just really healing. Even myself as a professional artist. I have to go through that. And my partner as well as a professional artist. We have to loosen up and just do crap things and be like, yeah, this is this is what real art comes. This is how you get better. This is how you get better in your health, your mental health, even your art. If you want to even be an artist, you have to start and be crappy. Well,
0: (laughs) you are wonderful. Crateforhealing.com. Thank you for being here. And we're gonna talk again. Anya Khan. thank you for being here. Have a lovely day. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Anya Khan. I'm so happy that she joined us today and we're going to have her back on again. I absolutely love chatting with her. Christy Lynn Hanchi, Wall Zebra. Have a lovely day.